Starly, this is your episode. You should you should rip it. Okay. Welcome to Election Profit Makers Movie Club. Lonely in space. We're gonna do lonely in space. This is this is the topic for today. I'm Starly Kine. I'm here with David Reese. Astronaut David Reese reporting for duty. Permission to podcast. Permission granted. And I'm here with my other crewmate, uh, Long John Silver. Hey. Everything secure? Yep, copy that. Over uh, on long in your distant station. comms are reporting. <laughs> All units um, go. <laughs> so the space idea came from David hating Mars. <laughs> and then we combined it with the loneliness that we've felt for this year of being in quarantine, isolated. Like, what's lonelier than space? There's nothing lonelier than space. I used to have so many fantasies about being alone on the moon. That was like my ultimate fantasy. And I used to really? love asking people. Yeah. I would lo- I would pay $100,000. If I had $100,000, I would pay $100,000 to be flown to the moon and then dropped off and then to have an hour alone on the moon. I think it would be such a profound experience to be the only human on the moon. Wait, why do you have to be the only this is interesting. I just want to be by myself on the moon. I just, you know, you you can go to like Death Valley and do that. Yeah, but it's different. It's different because it's the moon, and you're by, and you're the only human on the moon. Out of these four movies, there's one I really disliked so much, and you are like the character in that movie. And every time that character said the motivation that you are saying, I was like, nobody would actually feel that way. Nobody would want to go just to be alone in space. Really? Which character was it? Sandra Bullock in Gravity. She was like, I just want the quiet. I just want to be quiet. I just want to be quiet. <laughs> I am a little bit like, yeah, I'm a little bit of a Sandra Bullock, I have to admit. So what are the movies that we watched? Okay, so the movies we watched were Moon by Duncan Jones, Martian by Ridley Scott, 2001 by Stanley Kubrick and uh, Gravity by Alfonso Cuaron. Three movies about space men, one movie about a space lady. All four movies that we chose to watch, the characters are alone in space. Yeah, eventually. At some, yeah. Eventually, at some point mm-hmm. for, an, a susta- mm-hmm. for a substantial amount of time or substantial experience of time, um, they're alone. So I think we should discuss them both based on whether we like them and how much they mirror our experience in quarantine this year. Good idea. Okay. And if there's lessons in the movies that we can apply to being in quarantine. Yep. At some point, I want to talk about the beards in space. <laughs> Save it for the next Patreon episode. Best okay. sci-fi beards. Okay. We're com- combine all, all our right. themes. Because there were some interesting beards. No, there were some interesting beards. We should let everyone know that John is growing a beard right now. Yeah. It rate the beards per movie as well. Okay. You'll be in charge of that. All right. Mission objective confirmed. Yes, which is clearer than some of these objectives in these movies. Oh. I don't understand what anyone's doing up there. Uh, exciting things. Because it, it was a very exciting these things. <laughs> John, what happened to your video comms? We've lost your video uh, comms. Sorry, we are. Oh, there back. we go. Wow, that actually does make me feel shaky when I think of you in space and your and your visual goes away. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's start off by talking about the Martian. In the Martian, Matt Damon is on a mission to Mars with Kate Mara and. Jessica Jackson, <laughs> truly a crazy star-studded cast for this movie, considering everyone has the smallest parts, except for Matt Damon. And he, uh, uh, there's all these space rocks that have come out, and he gets left behind because they think he, he gets left for dead because they think he's dead. And he's got to be on Mars waiting to be rescued for the whole movie. My ultimate fantasy. John, You'll this will blow your mind as a Hollywood, as because you're a fiend for showbiz gossip. Yeah, When yeah. they nominated... The Martian for the Golden Globes, they put it in the comedy category because they thought it would have a better chance of winning. Huh. What was funny about could just because he was sort of silly and talking to himself? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Ridiculous. The beginning is very confusing, don't you think? What's happening? Uh I wouldn't I mean a clear a storm a storm came upon them and then they <laughs> they they were <laughs> They were in a situation. John, master storyteller, that was incredible. They were in a situation where the the uh, 
blastoff uh, rocket was going to tip over. And if it had tipped over, then all of them would have been stranded on Mars. So there was an opportunity where they could launch before it tipped over. But unfortunately, one of them got hit in the face with a uh, rock or uh, some sort of antenna and got knocked off it's course. very brightly lit during that scene, so. And then they decided, look, we got to launch. We're, we can go find him, but he's dead and then we'll all die, or we're going to launch and save five of us. So I kind of think they made the right decision to launch. So did he. But the confusing part is that before that, they're, like, collecting stuff, and then they're inside of, like, a space shuttle, and then they leave that space shuttle to go to the other space shuttle to leave. Huh. I must have missed that. I know. It's it's very, very, very beginning of the movie. These movies start out so strange where they, like, they have to cram in everyone's relationships before the action starts. They're cramming in both, like, the plot of the space journey and the relationships within, like, two minutes every time. But why does he have no relationship? I mean, what is he lonely for? He's got nothing. I have so much to say about this. That's the crux of it, yes. Martian has almost no pathos considering this guy has been stuck on—is stuck on Mars for, like, a year. That's what drove me crazy about the Martian. He only cries at the very end. It's like this—imagine being stuck on Mars— you're alone on Mars and you might die on Mars. And then the whole movie is like, well, I better get to work growing these potatoes, problem mm-hmm. solving and using science. It's like, can we just can't we just wallow in the existential dread and the sublime experience of being alone on Mars for one second? Yeah. He was like, I better get to work. I was like, I'd be like, I better take a nap. Yeah. Because just <laughs> yeah. so I can, you know, come to terms with my death. It's there's it's just there's something wrong with Matt Damon's character. He is very emotionally shut down. And so his way of coping, when he's like, I have to get to work, you can tell he's the kind of guy who's like, got to have a system, got to have a plan, never can let the feelings in. I saw The Martian in the theater when it came out on the big screen, and I I was so excited for this movie because I used to always ask people, would you go on a one-way mission to Mars? I always thought it was an interesting way to get to know somebody. And this was a movie about an accidental one-way mission to Mars. I was like, this movie's been made for me. Ridley Scott, a terrific director who's directed some wonderful movies. Matt Damon, my favorite guy, Jason Bourne, ultimate spy, butt kicker. And I love space and I love process movies in space. They're like heist movies. It's all about planning out some really ornate series of things you're going to do and then executing your plan. And I love heist movies. Heist movies are one of my favorite genres of movies. I was like, this movie's going to press all my buttons. I'm going to love this terrific movie. And I came out of the movie really disappointed. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is because of what what you're saying. It's like, it kind of doesn't do it for me because I feel like we've said he just never acknowledges the existential dread of what he's dealing with. And he's such a dork. I mean, he's such a dork. With his potatoes and his can-do spirit. But he was rocking out to disco. Isn't that, didn't that make him likable? I hate stuff like that. I, I know. Ugh, it makes I know. me so frustrated. Like, <laughs> listen, to, the, listen to this funny music he's listening to. Golden Globe, best comedy. I did think some things were funny. None of Matt Damon's jokes I laughed at, but I laughed no, at no, some no. of the like, spaceship specs. It's funny, though, that we're now evaluating it to see if it is actually a good comedy. No, no, it's not a good comedy, but there were certain things. It's the new Spaceballs. There were a few things that I laughed at. I thought it was funny them having the sh- the spaceship with a like a giant tarp over it. Okay, that was funny. I laughed at that. That was terrifying and funny. I was listening right when I watched The Martian. I was listening to the Castaway episode of Blink Check. Castaway is a great lonely in space movie. I love Castaway. I always want to watch Castaway. Yeah. And that The Martian is the Castaway of space. And I was listening to them talk about it, and they're talking about how like it just you understand what a movie star Tom Hanks is because mm. you just. You are enjoying being with him for every second. And Castaway has so much pathos. He tried to kill himself. He, like, he grows as a man on that island. He grows a beard on that island. He grows a beard, yes. (laughs) And and also he loses weight, very Uh much like Matt Damon, but— Okay, did Matt Damon really lose that weight? Because we didn't see his head attached to those scrawny arms. I was thinking, it's weird that you don't see his face. And also it doesn't really look like his body type because he's got, like, a—he's kind of—he's got a broader body type. I'll tell you, if I lost that much weight, I'd want my head attached to those skinny— things. Why did he, why did he shave his beard before he took off to go back? I mean, if I was going to spend a time in pandemic growing a beard or on Mars, 
Mm-hmm. I'd want to show it off and be like, okay, I'm coming back. I'm, I weigh 110 pounds or whatever he weighed, and I've got this amazing beard. He's all about uh, control. He's all about control. Yeah, I think you're right. And you could tell that by how ripped he was at the beginning. Yes, yes. This is a guy that is just totally into the machinery of his body and just uh, science in general. He would have been made for this pandemic. Yeah. No, I don't think so. But he's working on his projects. He's doing what I'm trying to do with my fucking tape recorder. Stay busy, stay busy. Get through this crisis. Stay busy. Work on your tinker toys. Tinker and build stuff. I know, but you. But that's when it all starts to like bleed out of the edges. <laughs> you can't keep it all in there. You have to find balance. The whole goal is balance, and he's got no. He's balance. gonna start. He starts working on that. He's, he starts working that. No, but he starts working the second he realizes he's stranded. But he's gonna start. He has no. He has. <laughs> not right away. Right. Not right away. He's got all this package. He does all the counting. He finds everything, and he's just like every single day you see him. He's just like, got a new little project, a new little plan. Yeah. <laughs> Never can let the it's not in. me. It's not me, definitely. It's not healthy. I think all these space movies are about telling you that your whole life has to be work, and that's the only purpose to life. Whoa. And they're all, they're this all, is all propaganda. Capitalist <laughs> propaganda, all these space <laughs> yes. movies. Look what he did. He survived Mars, came down, he was a hero, but he immediately started working. He starts teaching. He starts teaching after coming back from Mars, mm-hmm. and he's within the campus. So he has to be like within academia, within the space system. Everyone's got to be tell- reminding him that what he did was like the only path. Right. I think him being back at the Space Academy or whatever was sort of a nod to um, to Neil Armstrong, you know, him coming back. It's perverse. And that these guys can't really do anything else after yeah. you've been on Mars, you know? It's like, what on earth do you do? They just get stuck in this thing where they have to teach about it. But he didn't just go to the moon, though. He didn't, like, Neil Armstrong went to the moon and came back and, like, what do I do now? Matt Damon was stranded and thought he was going to die. Like, if that doesn't make you reevaluate your life and get your priorities straight and seek out companionship, he's on a bench by himself at the end. (laughs) He's sitting on a bench by himself at the end after being on Mars for a year. Maybe he's, uh... Emotionally crippled. Yeah, emotionally crippled. So, so I think he took, he's exactly the wrong person to thrive in the pandemic. Cause I think the pandemic is a time for self reflection and growth. And I think the people who allowed that to happen actually are the ones who are going to come out of this the best. Instead of the people, yeah, huh? Okay. Yeah. Because, well, look what happened to us during the pandemic. Look what happened in the world outside. All systems failed. There's people going out on the street trying to pull the systems down and exposing them for what they are. So anyone who is already like primed in quarantine to be doing self-reflection and saying, I don't believe in anything anymore. I don't know what anything is. Mm -hmm. I think those are the ones who are going to emerge into the future, the new world, and have an easier time than someone like Kim. I think if he was in this pandemic, he would have a breakdown on the other side. He was made to be on Mars. And that's why, that's the problem with the space program. That's why I now agree with David that we shouldn't be trying to get to Mars. Because <laughs> the whole trying to get to Mars is to make, like, robots like Matt Damon's character. I love it. You are anti-Mars now. The Martian, ironically, this big rah-rah science, yay space. <laughs> it's turned starly. She joins me now on the anti-Mars brigade. I really am. And, you know, everyone everyone in The Martian is like this. No one stops working. Like, the end of the movie, the triumphant end of the movie, he gets rescued. And then when they're doing the credits at the end, you just see everybody, like, still tied to the space program. Mm. The big ending that we see is he's back teaching and then there's another mission and everyone's just like in the in the control center watching another thing go off and one of the astronauts even goes up again and he's got a family. Right. I noticed we that. see him yeah. talk to his family and he leaves them again. Only the strong survive on Mars. I mean, cuz that's the only way you're going to get there, right? I mean, it's military culture in a way. You know, a lot of a lot of people who are working at these extremes, they just can't afford to yeah. be too existentialist about it because then they'll get distracted and they'll forget to grow their potatoes. Can you imagine the three of us going to Mars? We'd get to Mars. <laughs> yeah, we'd get pretty... <laughs> I couldn't even get to Florida at this point. <laughs> so many war movies post-Vietnam are movies about soldiers being gung-ho and then being confronted with the horror of war and then being like, oh my God, this is all bullshit. This is a nightmare. The space program is still too young and still too... I don't want to say naive, but maybe in 20 years or 50 years, we'll start to see the 
a spin on space movies right. where we'll start to get space movies about people going to Mars and then being like, wait a minute, why did I waste my whole life coming to this fucking dump? The space program is a racket. Space is hell. We used to say war is hell, and now we know space is hell. Maybe we're just not there yet as a culture. We're not ready for that. Are we allowed to, though? There's something weirdly more sacred about our space program than our our armies, though. Yeah, but just wait. I mean, we're recording this one day after the White House and the Department of Defense have announced that Space Force will now be known as the Guardians, and that is the new <laughs> branch of the U.S. military. <laughs> so now that the conflation of space and U.S. militarism is taking place, maybe we can get a jump start on these anti-space movies. Because I can't think of a space movie where the message of the movie is space sucks, don't go. There's plenty of movies like the Andromeda Strain or Alien where the twist is there's a weird thing out there in space, be careful. It's like when they used to travel across the ocean and they were worried about sea monsters. But I'm talking about a space movie where the message of the movie is don't come, don't come here, don't go to space. I think Moon is kind of that movie. Yeah. It gets to the heart of um, being uh, exploited by the companies that are profiting from going to space. The meaningness of, of, of the task that you do when you're in space. And Moon has, Moon, it actually is benefiting mankind the most. Moon, they're, they're like mining the minerals to provide lunar energy to Earth. So it actually does have a purpose. Helium-3. Yeah. Yeah. But they're so cheap, this corporation that has managed to provide all the energy to the world that they won't, they originally only send up one guy and then they clone him and make it so that his clone just has to do the work. Sam Rockwell playing a clone who believes incorrectly that he still has a doting wife waiting for him back on Earth. He sends video messages to her and mysteriously never hears back because... The moon company sabotaged antennas such that he is getting only taped messages from a woman who is actually aged years and years and years beyond the three years that the poor sap's been on the moon for. And what's so especially heartless is they send him up alone. Like the clone could at least have a buddy. If you're just going to be clones, I know. It's, That's what was, that was, there were some unrealistic things about that. That was one of them. What do you think corporations do? You think they're going to pay for two clones when they can do it for one? They don't think of them as people. They have, but he has Gertie, the Kevin Spacey robot. That's his buddy. Yeah, he was a nice buddy. It just seems like they would be more effective if they were working in a team. I understand why a corporation might do this, but it, the corporation is only doing it because they're stupid. I feel like his task for Menile Enough, there was he wasn't doing anything. He was just doing maintenance that they were like, we don't need someone else to be going to check to make sure the satellites are up and running. Yeah, you're right. And they were going to die anyway because of they were getting uranium exposure. So, yeah. So Moon opens and Sam Rockwell has really gone to seed, right? Because he's nearing the end of his tour and he gets a classic Floby haircut, little comedy there. But he also has a really wild castaway style beard. And I appreciate his beard. Uh, and I appreciate it, how it's used in the movie because you you see him go from being bearded to unbearded just immediately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he, he seems like a completely different person to me. Yeah, that stuff is good. Sam Rockwell does an amazing job in Moon. The physical, yeah, the physical yeah. acting is terrific. I had no problem watching Sam Rockwell by himself. You'd rather watch Sam Rockwell falling apart than Matt Damon solving another dorky problem. <laughs> yeah, than Matt Damon refusing to fall apart. <laughs> yeah. And then everything comes to a head when when Sam crashes his moon truck and gets conked out. So the company has to, ahead of schedule, rejuvenate a, a new clone who then proceeds to wake up, think he is the same old guy, and then stumble across himself trapped in the moon truck. So now we have two Sams, and they obviously have a lot of existential questions about this. Duncan Jones is David Bowie's son, the director of Moon. If you read what Duncan Jones says about Moon, it's the most literal explanations for everything in that movie. D Duncan Jones, son of David Bowie, went to graduate school for philosophy at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. He went to graduate school for three years, so that's why the clones live for three years. A after finishing three years of graduate school, he said, I, what am I doing? I don't, this was all a waste of time. And so that's what it's supposed to be that the clones looking back and being like, what was the last three years of my life? But it's so amazing to me that like, if you're David Bowie's son and you suddenly are going to graduate school and 
Tennessee, of course you would feel like you're living on the moon. And Vanderbilt, of all places. Yeah. It could not be farther away from your no. experience of your <laughs> no. life. I didn't know he studied philosophy, but that makes a lot of sense because this movie is just such a undergraduate seminar in the philosophy of personal identity. It was making me think of the famous um, British philosopher Bernard Williams has a famous essay called The Self and the Future, which has this iconic thought experiment about personal identity being maintained across bodies if you swap bodies. And um, it's it really has a lot of the same issues of Moon when it comes to identity continuity across different vessels and stuff. So that makes perfect sense that he was a philosophy student. Hmm. John, which Sam did you like more? Old Sam or new Sam? Sallow Sam or fresh Sam? Because this movie is really like, what's the meme? How it started, how it's going. Yeah. Because you, a- fre- you get a fresh clone that's right out of the box, and then you have this other guy who's been bumped around for three years, indoors, no natural light, looking like shit. And the two of them have distinct personalities. Even though they are clones, They their experiences like have- twins. Yeah. I, I didn't relate to the new Sam uh, at first, the Sam 2. Um I, I related more to the one that was kind of like, yeah, I've been here for three years and I'm I'm ready to go home. He's he's at the end of quarantine. He's ready to get back out in the world. I felt like that that old Sam was also like, you just accept things how for how they are, and you you spray your your plants and you whittle your little models. For a guy who really wanted to get home, he was less motivated than than Sam too than the, than the new Sam. Yeah, he's been beaten down after three years on the moon but also kind of peaceful. Like, I think that's what you're supposed to, you're supposed to wonder about. Like when his wife in the video says, I think this was good for you. I think that old Sam, Sam one would have said, I think there are parts of this that were good for me. Like when he says, I used to have such a temper and I can see that in the new, in my former self. Right. I think moon is the, is the, is the closest to quarantine goals you can get. You're tired, you're broken, mm-hmm. you're worn down, but you've also learned some stuff by being with yourself for nine months. Uh-huh, uh-huh. See, I, w- I relate to these space movies that occur that seem more realistic. Obviously, they're all science fiction, but I relate to the ones that seem like that, that they're occurring, you know, in the 60s or they may be occurring in the 2050s. You know, they're occurring around this time. That Martian movie seemed like, it could be something that could theoretically happen. You have a storm on Mars. Um, I know David doesn't believe that we'll ever get to Mars. But in the same thing uh, with gravity. You think the Iron Man part could have happened? On Mars? Yeah, I mean, that was a little far-fetched, obviously. Um, and, and there were moments in gravity that were far-fetched. But those two movies, to me, seem like they were things that could really happen in real life. Whereas... Um, Movies, you know, like the Alien and things like that. I don't, I don't know. I never relate to those as much because I, I, I just it's hard for well, me. Well, the Martian and Gravity are both about movies that kind of are documents of the beginning of a certain era of space exploration. Alien and Moon are movies where the reality is we're so used to being in space that now we're just extracting resources and making money from easily exploitable space astronauts. Yeah, and 2001 is kind of like that too. 2001 has both. It does. It has both. It does. It's so weird. I can, I never can figure out how I feel about that aspect of 2001 of where it is. Because in some ways, you know, like where you have the, the flight attendant walking through that. Pan Am, that sick Pan Am logo in space. That's got to be like one of the most exciting things ever. Yeah, you're like, this is definitely the 1960s. But so much of the rest of, uh, of 2001 does not feel like it was shot in the 60s. It fe- feels like it was shot in the 80s or the 90s or something. It just looks so good to me. Yeah, it looks incredible. It also has a feeling of being from the past in that everything's like, like a classy experience. <laughs> yeah. People people still got dressed up to fly into space when they made 2001. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they put on their suit to fly in a spaceship. Yeah, and they had yeah. manners. Right. Aesthetically, why is everything in space white? Is it just, <laughs> is it so they can determine that things are dirty or is it just that, uh, you know, like in ho- how hospitals are sort of institutionalized in that sense, they're painted white? Or is it just our, our modern imagination of how things would be in the future? But it, it is also reality. Everything really is white in space. Like the space shuttle is white. Yeah. It's kind of cold, though. 
wouldn't you want there to be some like some greens or some uh, you know pinks or something to chill these people out? Earth tones, man. You want some earth tones. It should look like a McDonald's. Yeah, it should be warm. In M- Moon, he said he designed that bunker. It's supposed to be made from actually from the moon itself. Like they built it up there instead of bringing it up with them from like the minerals that you found on uh, the moon and turn it into concrete. Okay. I hated that he had to, to, to step over that thing every time. I'm like, really? You got to design that thing? So there's like a step over. Yeah, there was a little step in the middle. The pod the, was separated yeah. in a way that- um, he trips on it at one point, right? Yeah. Uh, and also the fact that he had an accident. I mean, nowadays we got cars. If if I'm, you're backing up in your car and you're about to hit a tree, your car will literally hit the brakes. How is he having an accident on the moon? I do think that a big a big distinction in sci-fi movies is like we were talking about whether you're making a movie about the dawn of a space exploration or a movie that's set in the world where everything has been established. Like I used to be really into grimy, gritty sci-fi. Like Alien is really good about Alien is obviously a sci-fi classic and the interior of their space station is just it's just such a dump because they've been there for a while it's kind of like moon it's like pelham one two three yeah yeah um, yeah exactly it feels really lived in and grimy and i rewatched one of the grimiest sci-fi movies of all time a couple weeks ago district nine whoo you want to talk about Mm -hmm. some gritty grimy sci-fi that movie is an incredible example of dumpy is that good yeah district nine's really good yeah i think you would like it And then there's one movie, a Matt Damon movie, coincidentally, that has the best of both worlds. It has the pristine sci-fi and the gritty sci-fi, and that's Elysium, where everyone on Earth, it's far in the future, and everyone on Earth is just bumming around in these awful shanty towns. And then up in space, orbiting the Earth, is this super fancy space station for rich people called Elysium. And that is classic 2001-era hotel reception desk for the space station where all the rich people live. Is it is it difficult to focus on a story in a space movie when you're dealing with so much technical crap, special effects or real effects of people floating around in space? I would become obsessed with that if I were the director. I'm like, this has got to look real. And then the script <laughs> would suck. But they still insist on putting a story in, which is what I get confused by. Mm-hmm. Like, Gravity, she's by herself in space. Why the hell is she talking? All right, let's talk about Gravity, because Starley's been waiting to get up in Gravity's orbit. So let's let's just get to it. Yeah. So far, we've talked about Moon and its philosophical underpinnings and, the, and all the psychological stuff that's going on. And then we've talked about Martian with all of its wonderful logistics and problem solving. Why not take the best parts of both of those movies and put them into a single masterpiece called Gravity in which a person has some problem solving to do all alone in space, but you also get this emotional depth because she has a daughter who's died and she's all by herself and it's her first time in space and she's getting pummeled by this damn fucking space debris. Russian space debris. Gravity, the best movie of them all. Take it away, Starly Khan. Talk about your favorite movie. Okay, I just have to clarify... The Martian is a disappointment, but I don't hate it. I need to say that because I hate Gravity. Really? You hate it? I don't want it to be muddied. I don't want it to be muddied. I saw Gravity in the theater. I guess I didn't like it, but I never really thought about it again. I watched it again for this. I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay, what was terrible about it? What was terrible? Okay, okay. so, So, first of all, watching it on a small screen... Have you guys, David never saw it in the big screen. John, did you see it in the theater? I did see it in the theater, yes. It was much better in a yeah, big screen. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, it has not, there's nothing to this movie if you're watching it on a TV or a laptop. Yeah. On a laptop, it felt like I was at Disneyland in a ride. <laughs> uh, and so that doesn't make it worth it because you want to make something that actually stands the test of time and can be enjoyed for future generations. So it's an entire movie where she's basically alone once George Clooney's gone. But the storyline is so dumb. I don't need to watch a movie about a woman in space whose daughter died on a playground after playing tag and is trying to, like, find a reason to live again. Like, that storyline combined with this, like, uber insane male technical conquest, it was it was insulting. <laughs> it was patronizing. It was so patronizing. Yeah, okay. Here's what happens in Gravity. It's Sandra, Sandra Bullock's first time in space as an astronaut. She's up there with George Clooney, who's the experienced mission commander, and a bunch of other people, and they're making some repairs to some satellite up in space overlooking the Earth. 
And this is the famous movie that Quaron made with all these high-tech digital effects and stuff. And apparently if you see it on the big screen, it's just incredible because there's all these incredible, you know, tracking shots and you can't tell up from down or left from right, which is what it's supposed to be like in space. Obviously very disorienting. And then what happens is the fucking Russians... They shoot down a satellite or something, and that creates all this space debris. And the space debris is zipping around the Earth and, and dinging up the satellites. And basically what happens is every, all the other astronauts get flung off into space or they die in the spacecraft. And so it's just Sandra Bullock who has to make her way slowly, first with George Clooney, but eventually George Clooney dies as well. And she tries to make her way to a Chinese way. space station or something so she can return to Earth. So gravity... Has a lot of problems. Gravity, I think, is the movie that Matt Damon's character in The Martian would make. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Right? Yes. yes. And 2001 is the movie that the first Sam Rockwell clone from Moon would make. <laughs> <laughs> if you have to figure out which character in these movies made the yeah. other movies, that's what it is. I have to convey I have to convey my experiences in space, says Matt Damon's Martian character. I'm gonna teach at Space Academy, but I'm also gonna write a movie for Sandra Bullock to star in that will help people understand how profound space is and problem solving in space is. You're absolutely right. And I'm gonna call in a favor to George Clooney and see if George Clooney will star in it. Yeah, I think gravity I was not into gravity. I'm sure watching it on IMAX, it probably would have been overwhelming technically. But when I went to the Gravity's Wikipedia page, I was stunned at how many accolades and awards it won. People were saying like it was one of the best movies of the year. And I was kind of like, it's kind of lame and Sandra Bullock's character is kind of boring. And having a dead kid yeah. as your, the the cheap pathos of a dead kid is just so, yeah. it feels kind of lazy to me. But the space stuff was kind of cool. The debris, I was loving the debris. I love debris. I wrote down yeah. debris equals gains on my <laughs> But yeah, George Clooney, I didn't even remember George Clooney in this movie. I was like, Sandra right. Bullock, she's in it. And then and then I realized, yeah, of course, I don't remember Clooney. He dies pretty soon. Also, the soundtrack was not helping. Bad soundtrack. I, I remember George Clooney because I remember being sad. I always get sad when they die. It, I mean, it's the loneliest death. It is the loneliest death of all. Um, but I hate how he dies. But we've never had anybody die in space this way, I don't believe. I was, okay, so I— in what? In real life? In real life. So, okay, uh, so I was making jokes watching all this, and I was, you know, doing opposite talk and saying, you know, space, it's really fun and safe. Uh, and a small amount of people died on our way to get to space. But then I started thinking about it. I don't think that many people have died. No, more people have died going to, like, the North Pole than have died in space. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's still, and in, in we're, you know, in our infancy, in our, in our sure, space it, exploration. We'll catch up with but space I think we, sure. I think we've had, like, 50 people die maybe— and I don't think we've had anyone flung out into space. Uh, no, that but, hasn't yeah, happened That yet. probably will happen at some point. Spacewalks are pretty safe. No one has ever been decoupled from a spacewalk or sacrificed himself on a spacewalk. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they're flying around like hundreds of miles in on these spacewalks with their thrusters, I'm like, in reality, we've never been more than like 25 meters from the spacecraft. Why not just have George Clooney live and then the both of them are trying to escape? Why do you have to make it so she's alone? Because if you're going to write such a bad storyline, and she's not the actress to watch by herself, yeah, at least that I character. Agree. Remember when we did Queen Latifah and I was like, Queen Latifah should be in Gravity? And <laughs> yeah, I was right, yeah. kind of like reaching yeah. for a random movie. Now I'm like, yeah, she absolutely yeah. should have been. But if you're going to yeah. make such a lame storyline, just have George Clooney survive and the two of them be in there and make yeah. that the movie. I don't need to have Castaway Gravity. It just all felt like him being like, I need. It felt like the way he is in Children of Men, where he's like, I got to have the longest shot, and now I got to have the most space debris in any movie. That's, <laughs> this is right, Matt Damon's character. Matt Damon's character. Here's the pitch. Here's the pitch, guys. More space debris <laughs> than any other movie ever made. I don't even think it's the most silent space movie because 2001 oh, is so yeah, silent. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's two people on that ship, and they're talking. They're, they don't talk very much, but you get so much right. out of it. Well, there's more than two. The, there's there's a there's some others. Okay, but well, they get killed. How? But what about the three that? What about the three that um, that Hal kills? They're not awake. But they're real people. She's talking about speaking. She's talking about relation. Uh, speak, speaking, speaking people. people. Oh, okay. I'm just saying that one of them was Doctor Kimball, and I related to that person. Whoa, really? Oh. I didn't notice that. Yeah, he said Doctor Kimball is sleeping, and he's going to be sleeping a lot longer. Because I'm about to kill him. How do you feel when you watch um, Fugitive? Do you go out of your mind? Isn't his name Dr. Kimball? Dr. Richard Kimball, yep. 
Actually, my cousin is uh, Richard Kimball. Um, and he's actually a Dr. Richard Kimball, too. Ask John how he feels when he watched Kindergarten Cop. John, what's Arnold Schwarzenegger's character's name in Kindergarten Cop? John Kimball, yeah. That's right, baby. <laughs> so Gravity was our least favorite. I agree with Starly. But Gravity also has the least, like, I couldn't get any lesson about quarantine from it. Mm, wait a minute. There's got to be a lesson. Let me think. What is the lesson in Gravity related to life in quarantine? Don't give up, believe in yourself, and overcome adversity. No. Because her problem, you're right, because the thing about gravity that's not satisfying is it kind of splits the difference between a psychological space movie and a logistical space movie. But the logistics, unlike The Martian, to give Martian its due, there's some pretty hardcore logistics and problem solving that goes on in The Martian. This yeah. guy's growing potatoes on Mars. Okay, we have to give him respect for that. Yeah. Gravity, it's the problem solving is kind of just lame and generic. It's like, I have to get from point A to point B, but my parachute is stuck. Yeah. It's not even interesting problem solving. Yeah. So it is kind of like an amusement park ride. I think you're right. And if you don't see it on the big screen and it's not completely immersive, like when I was watching, I was like, what? Like, there's nothing here for me to- Hold on to. Nothing here to hold on to. It's kind of like being on a spacewalk, a lame spacewalk. Totally. It's shocking how ineffective it is on a little screen. Yeah. I got to give a thumbs down to Gravity. Have you guys seen E2 Mama Tambien? Yeah, a long time ago when it came out in the movie theater. Yeah. You know, that's his first movie. And yeah. then he went on to make like Children of Men and he's just like progressively gotten further away from his roots. That mm -hmm. movie, I just saw E2 Mama Tambien for the first time. And I was always like, I get it. Or it's too late for me to have seen that. And Did you like it? It is so incredibly good. It is so incredibly good and not what you think it is. It's surprising. There's something in it that is a surprising kind of playing with form. And so for him to go from that to what making Gravity and then he's getting all these awards and they're saying whatever the yeah, thing they, is, like that's rewarding the wrong thing. And yeah, we have yeah, to yeah. stop all of this. Maybe another, another space movie should never <laughs> be allowed to get made because that's we're, we've gone in the wrong direction. Did you see another movie that kind of tries to be an emo space movie about floating in space? It's a Brad Pitt movie called Ad Astra where he goes to find his dad who's in space. I can't. That movie, I watched that movie. I was like, again, I'm thinking this movie's made for me. A guy's going to go into space to find his father and finally understand his father. And his father's been floating in space. I was like, this movie is going to hit all my buttons. It is so... Just it, it, Ad Astra only works if you think of it as a very, very dry, dark comedy. Mm -hmm. Golden Globes comedy category. Here's a spoiler alert for Ad Astra. Brad Pitt is the son of a legendary astronaut played by um, Tommy Lee Jones, who has disappeared in space and nobody knows what happened. So Brad Pitt decides to go on this mission to go find his dad, who's like a million light years away. So Brad Pitt flies into space all by himself and he finally tracks down his dad after the whole movie. And he's like, come home, Dad, I love you. And Tommy Lee Jones is basically like, nah, I'm going to keep floating in space. I, I have no interest in you. <laughs> and he just leaves. <laughs> he, like, cuts it. I think what happens is Tommy Lee Jones does a George Clooney and literally cuts the cable and floats away to die in space rather than return to Earth with Brad Pitt. Rather than being a dad. Yeah. Now, if you take that as a dark comedy, like, that's a pretty, pretty heady uh, punchline. But if you're watching it as like this, you know, it, I think Interstellar is responsible for all these like emo space movies. And I want an emo space movie, but I've never mm -hmm. seen the emo space movie where the point is space is overwhelming and sublime. It doesn't need to be about, oh, I miss this person or that person, my Earth family. I have to go into space to heal my Earth family. That's that's fake space emotion. Well, well this is the thing. As we get into 2001... The, the moment in 2001, there's two moments where you see two different people in space call home. And there's like little films right. that play. One of the doctors calls and talks to his daughter, which maybe is like Stanley Kubrick's real life daughter. It's someone's real life daughter. You can tell that's a real kid. Yeah. And then there's another moment where an astronaut calls and talks to his parents. And they're like actual thought put into those interactions. So you get a taste of what their life is with their parents and their life with what the kid is like and what their parents are like. Mm -hmm. And it's like, for some reason, from that point on, we decided we didn't actually need to develop people's relationships and families on the, in these films. That Every one of these movies has someone calling back to Earth. Right, yeah, yeah. It's such a trope now. Yeah, it's such right, a trope. Yeah. 
You in in Gravity, you see the tag with the guy who died. You see his fam- a picture of his family, and then she talks about her daughter. And then in Moon, you see him call home, talk to his wife. And then in Martian, he's you see them talking to their family. In every single one of these, you're like, who are these people? I don't buy for a second that they would right. be yeah. trying to get back to Earth to see these these like sh- uh, <laughs> perfect, right. flawless uh-huh. <laughs> family. Like, it just it your uh, family these, like, is boring. Stay in space. That's what Sterling's really saying. <laughs> what Tommy Lee Jones is saying. He's right. like, I yeah, don't want to yeah, go yeah. back. I don't right. know you. He's like, why do I want to hang out with some weird son? I'm in space. I'm floating in space. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, give me a compelling reason. And at least in 2001, when he calls and talks to his little daughter and she's like, Daddy, will you be home for my birthday? Right. Bring me a present. He's like, no, I'm in space. (laughs) I'm missing your birthday. It's hard to make an emotional space movie that is not just sentimental. And that's what I'm waiting for. I am wanting emotional space movies that don't hinge on just sentimentality about oh, I'm so far away from my family on Earth because that could be a seafaring movie or that could be a moving across the country in the 19th century movie. We need to have something where it's about the space of it, the spaciness of it. And that's what 2001 gets to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, has there been one since 2001? We might as well just get into 2001 because I think it was all of our favorites. I mean, The Martian was the spaciness of it. He 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 had no family. He didn't, they didn't waste Yeah, but he didn't, but I'm, I'm talking about, basically what I want is a movie it's 90 minutes of the world's most handsome actors and actresses floating through space and just crying at how sublime and overwhelming it is to be in space. I'll watch that. That's all I want. That's all I want. That's a two-page screenplay. Okay. What about Jodie Foster in uh, Contact? So that is one. I was making a list. There's Contact, and then it's kind of, it's not really a space movie, but Arrival gets at some good emo stuff. It's about aliens, but mm-hmm. she's not in space, but she's dealing with with a completely destabilizing relationship to language and time. That's very interesting. That also, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, has a dead daughter, which is a trope, but I mm-hmm. think it's more interesting, certainly, than the dead daughter in Gravity. So I would put Arrival on the list. What about E.T.? Yeah, I think E.T. is probably the original, for our generation, original intense space movie. Yeah. About space. E.T. was good. Yeah, it was heavy. I mean, E.T. is why I wanted, why I cared about E.T. in this movie called Explorers with River Phoenix, when I, which was also like a Steven Spielberg movie where the reason I would like sit outside and look at the stars. Right. The wonder. You need to have some wonder. I don't know if I saw Explorers. It's got puppets. All right, let's talk about 2001. 2001. Okay. Okay. Rated G. This has got to be the heaviest G-rated movie ever. This movie should be rated triple X for mature audiences only because- (laughs) I love that it's rated G. That's just like such a power move by Stanley Kubrick. The king of G-rated themes, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick with 2001, 1968. I mean, I've seen, this is probably the third or fourth time I've seen 2001. This is the first time it, I think it really uh, hit me. Everything, I like from the first opening shots of all the planets lining up with the Strauss music, it's just like, it's just on a different level from any of these other movies. Yeah. It, it felt like, it felt like when I watched 2001 after watching Martian, I watched it directly after watching Martian before Gravity. Ugh, um, it felt truly like I was so starved and suddenly was being fed and nourished in a way that illustrated how depleted I was. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought it was based on an Arthur C. Clarke novel, but the novel came after the screenplay I read. I just realized that, too. I didn't know that until watching it this time, too. Yeah, they wrote the screenplay together. They collaborated on the screenplay. Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, after they finished the screenplay, wrote the novel. I mean, this— It's amazing. (sighs) Do you know um, 2001 is why we have a podcast? Why Election Profit Makers exists? Why anyone has a podcast. Why podcasts exist. What do you mean? Because— when they have to go to the repair, those little vessels they're in are called pods. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. And the reason iPod, when iPod started, their oh, na- iPods are named after the, the pods, pods in 2001. 2001. And podcasts are named mm. because of iPods. Right. You forget that because yeah, it's been so long since right. we've had iPods. So the reason anyone does a podcast instead of a radio show mm-hmm. or a something else show is because of 2001. Interesting. Also, yeah. 
Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't even know where to start talking about 2011, to be honest. Well, let's start with, I mean, it looks terrific. There's obviously so many iconic shots in this film. Using practical models instead of CGI just makes such a huge difference. The music is incredible use of music. The sound design is impeccable. These, these cuts into absolute silence. I can't imagine seeing it in the theater because it, it, it gives me goosebumps at home when they cut to those silent scenes. And you're just like, ooh. I, I saw it in the theater, not when it re- originally came out, but like some, you know, when it was released at some point. I saw it in Chicago at this place called The Music Box. It was live orchestration, you know, for the movie, Whoa. like one of those kind of shows. Uh-huh. It, was, it was a totally beautiful theater, wow. an old, ornate theater. And I remember being blown away. But even watching it on your laptop, you still can access it, which is which is different about gravity. Gravity collapses right, yeah, once yeah. it's not on the screen. But yeah. this, you feel it. Mm-hmm. And so many of the shots, like, it just makes so many other movies seem so noisy and thirsty and desperate, like a kid mm-hmm. jumping up and down, <laughs> waving their arms. So many of the shots in 2001 are just completely locked off tripod shots with no camera movement. Yep. And the images are yep. just so fucking iconic and heavy mm. and beautifully composed and bright that it's like it's worth it's worth 20 minutes of some crazy cutting edge digital camera jig that now can travel around on multiple axes at the same time and shoot Sandra Bullock before they digitally insert her face behind a astronaut <laughs> helmet. Like it's just so confident. It's so quiet and confident. It's worth all the space debris you could ever create. Yeah, so it was it was amazing. I was watching it and and yeah, I, I was I, I maybe because I was watching it after watching these. Uh, obviously, you, there's no point to compare a, mo- a movie like Moon to a movie like 2001. Like the budget, the themes, they're all different. But watching 2001 after watching Gravity, where Gravity I think wants to be overwhelming and just completely, you know kind of all-powerful and immersive and and emotional. And then you watch 2001. I'm watching a monkey smash stuff with a bone and I'm already more invested (laughs) and more and more excited you know and then the monolith shows up and these and these monkey men are like touching the monolith and it's just like so crazy and fucked up and it's emitting this crazy sound and then and then they go to like the most iconic smash cut in all of movie history you know when the bone you know it's a cut of a million years and then it's a fucking spaceship it's just like so baller and confident it was I was like overwhelmed it yeah. was just so incredible. And then he, when he goes into the fucking space vortex and that stuff still looks brand new and none of it is digital and the colors, exactly. it, it's just like, it looks like it was made tomorrow. It still looks so fucking good. How, how does it age so well? It's just because it was just so simple and classic. I didn't remember any of the beginning stuff in 2001. I remembered the the apes and right. I remember the bone and the monolith, but For once sure. the once the flight happens, the doctor going to the uh, whole middle section when he moon, goes to the moon to see the monolith that they've just uncovered on the moon, right? Yeah, I didn't remember mm-hmm. any of that. Right. It it's like an hour of the movie. Yeah. This yeah. character that you never see again other than when he shows up on the video. Right. Obviously Kubrick his confidence comes through with what he, like, the leisureness that he uses to, like, pace his movies out. Like, take an hour to do the first, the journey to the first leg of space before you even get to right, space. Right, right. The middle third of this movie has no action and almost no dialogue. And it's so engrossing. Let me ask you guys a question about 2001 and the humanity of it. So, I don't remember, I mean, I remember watching it in the past and being like, yeah, I see why it's a classic. That's pretty crazy. That's a pretty wild movie. At the climax of 2001, this time watching it the other night, I burst into tears. I had a very emotional reaction after when he points at the monolith in his in his deathbed, and then you start to hear the space Zarathustra come in again, and then a huge baby is floating through space. I burst <laughs> into tears. I had a, it was by far the most emotional reaction I had to any of these movies. Mm-hmm. So. 2001 is also famous because the humans in the movie, everyone always says, Hal is more human than these human beings because they're all so closed off and there's so much clipped speech and there's so little facial emotion on these actors' faces. Kubrick, the famous, like, clinical director, right? 
Why is it so emotional when it's really hard to relate to any of the humans? I related to him, though. I related to Dave. You is do? his name Dave? Yeah, Dave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I found a lot of emotion in his face. In those, in the once he starts taking Hal apart, when you see his face and you see that he's scared and trying to stay focused, is when yeah, you begin maybe to you're see. right. Maybe you're right. And then once he's in the those those incredible shots, the very fleeting shots of his face when he's going through. Oh fuck it! The, the stills, wormhole. the still shots of him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> another oh another God, another terrifying. directorial choice of like absolute confidence it's just like so amazing it's so baller that's so yeah it's so exciting and shocking who who, is he a famous actor you know he you know who he looks like to me he looks like um who is the the actor that was in uh starship troopers um oh the kind of hunky guy they have the same eyes yeah casper casper van dien he's actually the second husband of the mother of the girl who gets stuck in the Nexium cult, David. Like Catherine what? Oxenberg, who's looking Whoa. for her daughter, yeah, India, yeah, yeah, yeah. in The Vow. Her second husband is Casper Van Dien, the star of Starship Troopers. And you see Whoa. him flash in The Vow every once in a while. Um, I don't know who any of the actors are in 2001, and I, I didn't even look it up, and I was like, maybe they were famous back then, and I didn't know it. Yeah, I like that. That's what I like about it. Right. The only celebrity in 2001 is Hal. What do you guys think the ending means in 2001 and how does it relate to quarantine i i wonder about this a lot you know i think about it when i watch someone like david lynch you know and you come away and you say what was that like what happened you know at the end of Mm -hmm. mulholland drive or something or certainly at the end of twin peaks the return and i always wonder like maybe that's not the point maybe it's just to have a feeling like a dream I don't. I don't know what. I don't know if like, there's like quote unquote an answer to what the end of two thousand and one means. I always felt when I watched it as a kid, or when I watched it the first time. This time, I wasn't sure. I was like, I don't know what this is. Uh, but in the past, I always felt like he was like a zoo animal or something. He was in a space zoo, right? Yeah. That is the original. That is what he's trying to say. It is okay. So what I like about these kind of endings is. Even if the director has an answer, I like that you can interpret it as much as you want. And I like the game of discussing it and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what it means to you and also revisiting it and it meaning a different thing. When the director does know what he's trying to say and also is like, it's okay if you guys believe what you want to believe. Well, yeah, the director has to have an answer so that they can yeah. make it with confidence. And you can tell the difference when they don't. When you fake it, oh, yeah. You can tell when someone's faking it. And they're like, hopefully they'll think this is deep. I don't know. Uh, because it's so specific. Everything about that ending is really trippy, but also very specific. The weird mm-hmm. illuminated mm-hmm. floor of the of his bedroom and him dropping the wine glass, you know, knocking it off the table accidentally. Oh, God. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that to me is the quarantine stuff. Making a little dinner. (laughs) Don't know how. You're in a windowless room. You make a little dinner. You knock something over. This weird, awkward human mistake happens. You pick it up. Next thing you know, you're in bed. What does the monolith represent? Is that television? Is that uh, the screen for Zoom? Yeah, it's your iPhone, bro. It's your iPhone. Yeah. You're in bed staring at your iPhone. Yeah, it feels like that. They wanted some of the versions of the monolith was going to be, it was going, the original idea was it was going to be a screen, an actual screen. And they got rid of that. And then in the book, when he wrote it, he did make it a screen. And obviously it looks like the shape mm. of an iPhone. And it's also the shape of Hal. If you look at Hal's shape, it is the shape of the monolith. Mm-hmm. Like the, the eye rec- is It's a narrow top, rectangle, it, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because they said that the reason the monolith appears to the apes the entire agenda is actually supposed to be space travel because it's supposed to be these higher life forms who are trying to get us to the zoo so they can they can study us. And so the, like, us evolving into creatures with opposable thumbs who make tools and or, or so that we can come up with technology so that we can come up with space travel, to, it's just, like, a very elaborate mean to the They to were the playing end. the long game. Yeah. I mean, we have to admit, because that <laughs> monolith was hiding out on the moon yeah. for, like, four million years yeah, and then it took us another, what, 200,000 years to to get there. They were very, very patient. And I feel that the challenge of the monolith, if it's in quarantine, is either we can use the monolith as an iPhone and stare at our phones all day and not, and not grow. But what the monolith actually wants you to do is evolve 
and learn and grow. It, oh. It's telling, it's, that's what is supposed to be happening. So when you see the monolith in this movie, yeah. according to your interpretation, you don't see it as ominous or menacing. You see it as truly like a helping hand. Well, I do see it as menacing because it leads to war. I mean, everything, technology is ominous. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that the end is him as a zoo creature, mm-hmm. there's a really amazing thing where the only time Stanley Kubrick said what the ending was, was this Japanese filmmaker was making a movie about the alleged paranormal activity on the set of The Shining. And he called up Stanley Kubrick on the telephone and was like, what does the end of 2001 mean? And uh-huh. you can see the video footage. Really? And Stanley Kubrick's like, you hear his voice come through a landline telephone and say, I've never told anyone this, but sure, I'll answer. And he just gives the answer. Space which is, Zoo? The answer is Space Zoo? He says what they intended was Space Zoo. And the reason that room looks like that way is because like these aliens were trying to build a room that they thought uh, Dave would like, the way that we imagine what a gorilla, in a right. zoo. How can we yeah. make this gorilla forget yeah. they're in a cage? Oh, we'll put some bamboo over here and a big pile of dirt. They'll think they're outside, <laughs> idiots. Right, yeah. And it's kind of wrong. The details are off yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. uncomfortable right. and you got to live there. And yeah. also that is very quarantine, us in our apartments being mm-hmm. like studied just by ourselves, like trapped uh-huh. wherever we are. According to that theory, Starly, yeah. why then does the monolith appear in the bedroom when Dave is on what appears to be his deathbed? And he points at the monolith. Is that like a? Is that like the the kid jumping the fence at the zoo and getting into the cage with the gorilla or whatever? Well, he's about to evolve into the baby, though. So you think that baby is Dave? That's what they say it is. When that fucking baby shows up at the edge of the screen, can you imagine? I mean, you've already been through a lot at that point if you've been watching two thousand one. But like, so my uncle went to see 2001 in the movie theaters in 1968 and never went to the movies again. I remember him telling me that as a kid once. He was like, yeah. I was like, did you go see Star Wars or whatever I asked him about? Did you see E.T.? And he was like, no, I saw this movie called 2001 and then I just never went back. And I think when I think about going, it's 1968. Like we're all into space. We're going crazy about space in America because it's the 60s. And we've had missions, you know, orbiting the earth and stuff. But we haven't been to the moon. You go to see 2001. Maybe you don't know anything about it except that it's a space movie. Um, And you go through all – you go through that whole movie. You go – you start with the hominids. Then there's this monolith. Then there's a monolith on the moon. Then they fly – and then they're going to go fly to Jupiter. And then you hit the, then there's an intermission. And then there's a title card that literally says Jupiter and beyond the infinite. And you're sitting in the theater like, what the (laughs) fuck is about to happen? So then he has this incredible psychedelic journey through all these planar surfaces of light and and crazy recolored landscapes and stuff. Then he's in this crazy fucking room and he's an old man. And you're like, and then the monolith is in the room and he's pointing at the monolith. And you're like, that's got to be it. Nope, one last thing. Outer space, a huge baby. (laughs) A huge baby with its eyes wide open, which is kind of uncanny because I think usually those babies, they don't have their eyes open yet, right? This baby just floats through space. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? People must have been like, honey, I don't know what that was. And the baby's as big as Earth. Oh, yeah, the baby's the size of a planet. But is that, I mean, so you guys saw that baby as a literal giant baby. I, I always just sort of looked at it as symbolic, like this baby represents humanity or something. Was I, I being too symbolic? It, to me, it seems not, I didn't take it to be an Earth-sized baby, but I think. But it's a big baby. The intention I mean, guys, we have to say, it's a big, big old The intention baby. is it was supposed to be an Earth-sized baby? The intention is it's supposed to be Dave. That's why Dave's eyes are blue, the baby's eyes are blue, and it's basically, like, because... So the aliens observe Dave in this zoo, and then they, after his entire life cycle ends... Cloned him? No, they, like, I think he's reborn. I think it's supposed to be reborn, They're probably not cloned. taking him up to the next level, right? Just like they did with the hominids. He's like, all right, you're, we're going to boost you up again. Get ready. The next... Uh, this is the next stage of human evolution. Yes. You're about to become Star Baby. I think it's known as Star Baby, right? It is, yes. yeah. yeah. So that's why I think the monolith in the room is signifying an evolution. It's like, now it's time. Okay, the Mm -hmm. doctor has entered the operating room, and it's like, now we're going to hit you with one last thing that's going to take you to the next level. Here are your vitamins. You're about to become an Earth-sized baby. 
<laughs> yeah. Is Dave's right. aging, are, are we seeing that in, in real time or is he aging incredibly fast? According to what they say, like kind of Arthur Clarke and Kubrick, it's like time yeah. isn't time anymore. He's gone through the wormhole to a different sense of time. So the way that he feels aging is actually how he aged. It's like a lightning, lightning fast version of aging, but he probably feels the effects of aging just in a much shorter period of time. Also right. remember how uncanny right. the editing in that final scene is within the room. He he ages when he turns and sees himself in a different part of the room. Then he is, you know, talk about like yeah. this identity jumping from body to body or whatever. It's like he knocks over the glass, right? And then doesn't he turn and see himself as an even older man in bed? And then we're in bed mm -hmm. with him and then we see the monolith? So he's in his spacesuit. He's landed. And he looks over and he sees himself as an old man inside his spacesuit still. Then he right. sees another, him even older at the table, and then the spacesuit version of him is gone. And then he's in on his deathbed. And I think it's really interesting that he focuses on, he keeps Kubrick's being like, you think that's old? You can still get older than that. Mm -hmm. Like, life mm -hmm. is long. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think you're right. And I think one of the things that's moving about the end of it is that sense of just like, yeah, before you know it, you're fucking old and you're about to die on your deathbed. You know, your life goes yeah. by in a flash. And you're in your house the whole time. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right. And and I feel like we've kind of all gone through, it's like the quarantine aged us at that rate. We already aged a lifetime within the first month of quarantine. Right. And now as <laughs> right. it goes on longer, we're just getting older and older. Yeah, check out this beard. John's beard, case in point. Why aren't there more movies like this? That's my other question. I don't know enough about the movie industry to know the answer to this, but... We don't have the... the we have the resources. No, but do you think we have the attention span? I feel like 2001 is too slow for the average person. The Martian's really slow. Mm. The audacity to make a space movie beyond two, after 2001, you have to really have something new to offer. And I feel like all they think you need to have something that's new to offer is, a, is is special effects. Or maybe they don't think about, maybe they are using the concept of space movie differently than we are. And they're like, well, The Martian isn't a space movie. It's a problem-solving movie that happens to be set on Mars. Or Gravity isn't a space movie. It's an action movie that happens to be set on a spacewalk. It's like speed. Yeah, right. It's speed, but we're going to do it in space because there's no gravity and that'll be fun. So, so do you think they don't even like 2001? No, I'm sure they love it. And I'm sure like if you ever buy a DVD of 2001, you'll have special essays written by Quaron and Ridley Scott because, I mean, everybody has to love 2001. I mean, this is a mind-blowing masterpiece of cinema. And maybe their attitude is... Maybe everyone's attitude is like, I'm not going to try to go up against 2001. Are you fucking nuts? No, I'm just going to make a movie about a guy who grows potatoes and poo on Mars. I'm not making my own 2001. But they all think they are making their own 2001. And attention span-wise, I was more engrossed by 2001 easily than I was by Gravity. Like, I could not get through Gravity. Yeah, Gravity's the one that I fast-forwarded through as well. You know who tried to make a 2001 and has a— uh, Christopher Nolan, Interstellar. I bet that was him trying to make a 2001. And then, come on, bro. I mean. I didn't see it. But I, I without having seen it, I accept that as He tried true. to make a heavy, metaphysical, emotional space movie with an overwhelming climax that's supposed to rewire your brain. And it's, it's not. I don't think it's that good. Any listener, somebody tell me what the other 2001 space movies are. And I know what people are going to say. They're going to say Stalker by Tarkovsky or Solaris I'm talking about these movies where you just go so far deep into space, you don't even know what, you don't even know how to interpret what you're looking at. That's what I want. And I love Sunshine, and I think Sunshine is a great sci-fi movie, and I think it does try to get trippy at the very end, and it doesn't really work, and it's certainly not as good as 2001, but I would say that Sunshine is a good deep space movie. It's really good. At the very least, though, why didn't they take the lesson of those videos home? I don't understand how you can watch the videos home in 2001 where he calls his parents and his parents are like awkward and weird and being right. like, we, we have your bank right. account set up and right. we've been bragging about you being in space. <laughs> how could you not at least be like, we have to live up to that. We have to outdo that. We have to have a, a fresh take on those videos. Because that's, that's not an unreasonable ask. Right. The other thing about The Martian, for someone who's like by himself on space, you'd be You'd be emailing the entire time. <laughs> like, you would. Like, he's, like, barely emails. Every once in a while, he sends, like, two lines, and then he's, like, logging <laughs> off for a month. 
during quarantine, like one of the most profound relationships I've had during quarantine was a friend who I started Marco Poloing, that app that you can just, like, it's an app called Marco Polo, and you talk, and then they watch the video, and then they talk, but you never are directly talk. It's not like Zoom. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It's like space transmissions. Yes. And so this oh. friend and I have been sending Marco Polos to each other since March. We've, Whoa. We have not talked once to each other. We have not e- We have not been on the phone once with each other. It's only been this one-sided correspondence. Mostly it's us in our apartments the entire time right. it's been yeah, us talking. Yeah, yeah. It's so important to me. It's like how I've marked time in quarantine. And like, it wouldn't have happened if quarantine hadn't happened. And this is a friend who was a close friend, but I didn't know every detail of her life until now. And none of these movies capture that. They didn't anticipate, they, they were so focused on what's going to be the new advances in space technology. They didn't think about what's going to be the new advances in human connection. Boom. And 2001 is that, where it's this right, yeah. computer gaining sentience and wanting to be a person. And But after 2001, they don't think about how there's just like, the goal is to have evolved forms of human connection. I mean, we have when we're talking about evolved forms of human connection in sci-fi, we have to give a shout out to another movie that Kubrick was at least partially responsible for, one of the most desolate movies ever made, AI, Artificial Intelligence, directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. The ending, the final minutes of that film are all about human connection, and it's just like like some of the heaviest stuff I've ever seen in a movie. So he's definitely interested in this stuff. And Spielberg is someone who's always understood that space and human connection go together. Close Encounters, E.T., A.I. I have never seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I just realized. It's so it's good. Great. Maybe that's the movie that I've been waiting for. That's an emo space movie, right? I got to watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I mean, I know all the stuff about the mashed potatoes and the music, and I know the shot of when the— All right, I'm going to watch Close Encounters. Yeah, watch it. I'm really glad we watched 2001. I can't remember whose idea that was, but— It's my idea. That was— that was great. Thank you for encouraging us yeah. to rewatch that. I got so much out of it this time around. And maybe I'm just old enough now, or maybe quarantine has been heavy enough, or maybe I've just been thinking about Mars and space and how just how dorky and literal everything is about space travel and this idea of space travel as conquest and all this stuff. And then you watch 2001, it's just like, whoa, it's, oh, God, golly. Yeah. We're back, better than ever. Starly Kine, recent convert to the anti-Mars warrior brigade. John Kimball growing his space beard. Astronaut David Reese, floating adrift as always. Thank you for your Patreon support, everybody. We appreciate it. And tell us about weird sci-fi movies, because I really do want to see some more weird sci-fi movies. I feel like, and I'm not talking about ones, like, whatever. I'll talk about it later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And transmission. Beep-boop. <laughs>